data is the oil of the 21st century, right? So once you had an oil well in your backyard, you didn't go and find other ways to invest. You just made sure that you dug another well next to it. You, with data, it's literally like oil. It keeps giving for decades at a time. So really learn to be data focused and be okay with giving up some of your control to your data. Think of data as a partner, right? So you have a partner, its first name is data, its last name is data, and it stands next to you. And whenever you asked him for a, you know, his opinion, he says, oh, this, this is a horrible area, don't invest in it. At that point, don't be afraid of giving up control to data data. He's your partner and you have to help him, allow him to make a good decision. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hey, our sponsor for the show today is Pine Financial Group, the leader in hard money lending in Colorado and Minnesota. And they were recently approved to offer their investment publicly. This investment offers only for investors in Colorado and Minnesota and is only made through their investment prospects. Get your copy today. Simply visit www.pineinvestments.com and click to get started. Look, there's a reason why some of the wealthiest people in history invest in loans backed by real estate. Learn more about the risks and returns at www.pineinvestments.com. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexhammer. With me today, I've got Neil Bawa. Neil, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show, Todd. Absolutely. I appreciate you joining us a little bit about uh, Neil. Neil is the man who is known in the real estate circles as a mad scientist of multifamily. Besides being an entertaining speaker, Neil is a data guru, a process freak, and an outsourcing expert. Neil treats his $200 million multifamily portfolio as an ongoing experiment in efficiency and optimization. The mad scientist lives by two mantras. The first mantra is that we can only manage what we can measure. His second mantra is that data beats gut feeling by a million miles. These mantras and a dozen other disruptive beliefs drive profit for his 500 plus investors that said, Neil, I think we got some cool stuff to talk about because I love the, the, the kind of the nerdy data stuff. I know. I mean, I, I, I tell people, uh, you know, I've only ever invented one quote in my life, but I think it's a good quote. I tell people that the Bible got it wrong by one letter. <laughs> you know, it is not the meek that shall rule the world, Todd. It is the geek. <laughs> right? You look at the top three richest people in the world. Bill Gates is a geek. You know, Jeff yeah. Bezos is a geek, right? Elon Musk is a geek. Yeah. I think the geeks are already ruling the world and people haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, 100%. And, uh, and, and you're on your way, right? I'm absolutely on my way. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to be super rich. It's not something that is on my vision board or something that's of interest to me. Yeah. I think what's in, of interest to me is to do things that are different, disruptive, to, to have the courage to say things that I truly believe in instead of just, you know, uh, trying to conform. Uh, yeah. And that, that is very much on my vision board. So tell me a little bit. Uh, let's get in. Let's just get into it. 
uh, right now. What do you say and what do you say that's maybe disruptive? That's maybe not what everybody else is saying right now. Sure. So there's a few things that I like to say that are more recent, right? So I'm usually known as a data analyst guy that basically gives people a set of metrics on, on where to invest. But I think what is more current and in my mind, it's more urgent to discuss is where do we stand in this cycle? Where do we, where do we think that things are going with multifamily? And there's a few things that I, I hear out there that, that scare me and stun me, and I, I want to talk about them, and I, say, I want to say th these are not right. Yeah. The first thing that I hear over and over again, and, and you know, I, I, like you, I consume a lot of podcasts, and so I'm listening to this stuff, and whenever I see something that, to me, is clearly the opposite of what the data says, I write that down. So the first thing I've been hearing, and I've probably heard this five or 10 times in the last three or four months is that class C properties do well in a recession. Mm. And I wanna tell my you know, people listening that there are great reasons to buy class C properties today. I am buying class C properties. I'm very bullish on class C properties, but no one should ever buy them because they do well in a recession. That's just happened because somebody said it on a podcast or a webinar or a conference and a bunch of people noted it down and started saying it to other people. And before yeah. you knew it, everybody was talking about them doing well in a recession, right? Buy classy, but expect that when a recession happens, here's what's actually going to happen. And 2008 looked like this, right? Firstly, anybody who said that, two, that classy did better than, than class B or A in 2008 simply hasn't looked at the numbers. There is very clear evidence that the, the uh, vacancy for class C spiked and it spiked more than A and more than B and significantly more than A and significantly more than B. Now, obviously there are regional areas within the US where there's, there was differentiation. So you could look at your own area. But when you look at the US, there is no doubt in my mind that class C hurt a lot more. Now the, the pain was mostly restricted to one massively bad year, which was 2009 or 10, I, I can't remember from the chart. So there was one year where the vacancy spiked a great deal. And then the following year, it immediately came back down to about six and a half percent. So they had one big year that was way beyond six and a half, more like eight and a half or 9%. And then they were at six and then it's, it dropped back down to the 5% level fairly quickly. So here's what I believe will happen if a, if a recession starts. So when a recession starts, the people that are living in class C, Todd, the vast majority of these people don't have 500 bucks in the bank. It's sad that we're the richest country in the world and the vast majority of the people that live in our class C properties, the guy that's driving the, the, the UPS delivery truck, the guy that's making coffee in Starbucks, doesn't have money to pay his next payment if he either gets his hours cut or simply loses his job. So. What actually happens is if a recession starts and a certain number of those people start to lose their job, first, in the first few months, you're not gonna notice much you know, happening to your occupancy because those people are still in there and they're still trying to figure out how to pay you maybe the first month they borrow money from dad or mom or whatever it is. And you start seeing your delinquency tick up. You're gonna start seeing a significant increase in delinquency. And then you're gonna notice that the number of people in your apartment complex that are being sent to the lawyer is ticking up a lot. So now you're in this, you know, basically we have to evict a bunch of people phase. And depending upon whether you're in South Chicago where it might take six to 12 months to evict or you're in, you know, in Dallas where it might take a month, you, you know, that's gonna cause significant stress for your property either way. Either way, there's, there's legal costs. Right. And then what you're going to notice is for a while, 
your occupancy may actually increase. And why does that happen? Well, it's because the people that were losing their homes in the class A and the class B are now applying to your property. And so you might see this weird trend where your occupancy goes down a little and then it goes up a little and it goes up three or four points as a bunch of those people that can't afford richer places get in now. Yeah. And then after that, it's gonna go down because the, all those people that you send to the lawyer, they're going to get processed and you're gonna kick them out and you're gonna have a first group of those people that go out and then you're gonna have a second group and then you're gonna have a third group because not everybody loses their job in a recession at the same time. Yeah. As the recession goes on, there's these tranches of people that are going to lose their jobs. So now you're gonna have every couple of months, you're gonna have an eviction set and that set on a 200 unit property might be 10 to 25 people each set, right? So this is, this is stressful because when people are showing vacancy on the web, all the people that are not paying you TARD, they're still shown as occupied. So your biggest problem is not your vacancy in a recession. Your biggest problem is delinquency. So your economic occupancy can fall very quickly in a recession to below 80%, even though your physical occupancy is well over 90%, right? And this is what you really should be expecting. Also at the same time, the people that are living in your apartment complex, all of those people, some of them are going to walk up to the front desk and, and these are people who are experienced at this, by the way, they're gonna walk up to the front desk and say, I can't afford to live here anymore. I'm, I'm just gonna give you a key. If you wanna keep my deposit, keep it. And then Todd's gonna to be like, no, no, I don't want you to leave my property, right? So what do I have to do to keep you? Well, drop my rent by 50 bucks right now and sign a new contract. Right? A bunch of them will do this. And in most cases, because you know a recession has come in, you're probably going to sign those contracts, right? At least you'll sign some of them, if, if, especially if you like them. These are tenants that you know, haven't given you any trouble in the past, but now they know that they've got, they've got you know, strength, right? They've got an argument. They know that you're, you're probably going to say yes to a $50 or $100 cut. And so people will negotiate that. The people that are coming in through the door are going to repeat the same process. Your prospects are now basically asking for uh, you know, a month free or two months free, those sorts of things. So now your incoming revenue is also going to be affected. That is what is the, the reality of Classy. This is what Classy looks like in the first nine months of a recession. And I don't, I'm not aware of any Classies in the US where overall your economic occupancy is going to stay the same. It is going to go down. And so when I keep hearing these people talking about a recession as an event that they're really happy about, uh, almost saying things like, well, what, wait, what, you know, just wait until a recession happens and you'll see how classy outperforms. And I'm saying in the last hundred years, none of that has ever happened. You're just listening to this stuff on some podcast and then regurgitating it. So that's been one of my beefs. Yeah, it, it's funny. It's, I mean, perfect timing because yesterday I was speaking at a meetup and somebody asked me that question. Well, aren't classy the best properties to buy in a recession? Because, you know, they exactly what you just said, they withstand and blah, blah, blah. And it's, and I said, well, yeah, they look good, right? It's a good thing to like say, we can say it really easily because of, of course everybody moves down, right? And so our classes are just going to be completely full. That sounds magical, but like you said, in reality, I mean, who are the people that get cut? And every recession that happens, you know, your your manufacturing jobs, your maintenance jobs, your construction jobs, they go from 40 or mandatory overtime right now, in many cases, to 40 hours, down to 32 hours, down to potentially even getting laid off. And those are your tenants in class C 
a lot of times and they're no longer employed and so they can't or or they've been cut so much so the other thing is too is a lot of people don't want to class down and right. so instead of classing down they're gonna room up so mm-hmm. they're gonna join one of their buddies and and they're gonna live in that class b or class a product and they're not gonna move to the class c and and because that product is also probably offering a lot of concessions Discounts. during that time yeah they have the ability to do that. A class B that may not allow budding up in a good time will allow budding up during a recession, right? So I tell people this whole concept of people moving down is faulty because there are three things you're not considering. Number one, people can move down besides a C. What are the, the, the three ways to move from a C down? Number one, mom and dad, right? Number two, trailer parks or mobile homes. And number three, budding up with somebody else in a class B or a class C, right? So, right, either one of those can happen. These three move downs still mean that class C doesn't just gain people. We also lose people. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on, you know, when we look at statistics, class A, pretty much class A, class B, pretty much class B, but class C, I feel like gets also some D lumped into it which also throws stats off. Do you, do you think that definitely affects it or? or I think so. I think, I think class C plus, like my, of my properties, I have properties that are C minus, like, you know, Windward Forest in Atlanta. I have C plus like Woods of Ridgemar in Fort Worth. My feeling is that the property that is in Atlanta is more likely to hurt than mm-hmm. the C plus that I have in Woods of Ridge in, in, in uh, Fort Worth. So there's definitely a difference there in terms of quality of tenants and their ability to pay. One thing I do like to say is, you know, so far this has been a slightly negative conversation. Yeah. But I want to tell people that nine months after the recession hits is a great time to be buying class C because all of the people that experience trouble during those nine months, their income has been decreasing, their NOI has been decreasing right? So if you basically now are buying based on T3, nine months into a recession, or maybe 12 months into a recession, that actually is a phenomenal time to buy. Because fundamentally, besides the recession, Class C right now is in a very, very strong market. We are, because the, the amount of Class C available versus the actual need is a very vastly different number. So when you do come out of that recession, instead of seeing a, a basically a, a recovery that looks kind of like down flat for a long time and up, what we are seeing with C is it's down and then sharply back up. And when it goes back up, it actually goes beyond what, what the original trend, right? It tends to keep going at that sharp rate before it plateaus out at a 2% rent growth again. So you, you have some recovery built in there. So if you're buying one year into a recession, on the downside, you didn't suffer. You got a big discount. And you know that there's a very sharp upside right ahead of you yeah. immediately in the first year of purchase. That's why you buy, buy Class C. So that is a reason to be excited about a recession, not existing property. Your existing properties are gonna suffer. And what I tell people is, people ask me, so what are you doing? You have a Class C property, you keep buying Class Cs. Uh, that, my, that was my next question. Right? <laughs> my, my feedback is this. The recessions are interesting in that they are always de- declared in hindsight. Yeah. No one has ever declared a recession saying next month is a recession or last right. month was a recession. That's not how it works. Yeah. America has a number called the GDP or the gross domestic product. 
when the GDP of the country is negative for two successive quarters, the Federal Reserve declares a recession. They're the only body that can actually declare a recession. So now what that means is you've already had six months of a recession before you, you know about it. Oh, so right. what do you do as a syndicator so you're not six months behind everybody? Number one, each quarter make sure that you've bookmarked the, the US's GDP's article. There's, there's, there's places on the web like uh, Bloomberg that have articles about the gross domestic product. If you see a single quarter of negative GDP growth, here's what I suggest you do, and this is what I'm gonna do. The moment there's a quarter of negative GDP growth, you need to send an email to your investors and say, we have a, we've had a quarter of negative GDP growth, and when we are reading about the next quarter, it seems like the next quarter may actually also be negative, which means a recession will be declared three months from now. As a precaution, we are going to build a war chest. And so we are withholding your distributions for this quarter. The money that we have right now, our property is doing just fine. We're gonna withhold this distribution and we're gonna put it into our war chest. Now, three months from now, if we see a positive number for GDP, that means that it was just a false alarm. One bad quarter, happens all the time, right? We're gonna go distribute the money in that war chest. But three months from now, if there was another GDP negative quarter and a recession has started, guess what we're gonna do? The money that we were going to give you three months from now, we're gonna add it to our war chest. And from then onwards, we will wait until a recession ends. The Federal Reserve says the recession has ended before we distribute that money. It's your money. We don't wanna spend it. We see no reason to spend it on CapEx or upgrades or anything like that. It's just gonna sit in a place until the recession ends. So that way, I basically bought myself, you know, three or four mortgage payments, right? In case something really, really bad happens like 2008. And in my mind, that's all you really need to do. I don't think you need to do more. And honestly, the worst that can happen is a couple of your investors are not happy about this. Do a webinar for 15 minutes and say, this is purely precautionary. Here's what, how my property is doing. Everything's going well. But my job is not to make you money. My first job is to protect your principal. I'm here to protect your capital. And when there's a negative GDP quarter, my job is to immediately switch to focusing on protection of capital. I don't think a recession will happen. Next quarter, positive GDP growth, you get the money. So it's just delayed. You say it that way, every investor you have will understand. Yeah, no, a great, great point. Good way to prepare your investors. And it's all about communication, right? And setting expectations up. If your investors are prepared for it and you've got a good reason behind it, most people are going to respect that. You're right. You might have a couple that are, are a little upset about it. But you know what? If that second quarter happens and a recession is declared, that, uh, they, they're, they're going to think you're a hero. They're going to say, you know what? Yeah. This guy knew three months ago. He was already prepping three months ago. Yeah. And that person is going to invest with you after this recession is over. Because yeah. he's going to say, when bad things happen, Neil Bawa was there three months before anybody else was even talking about a recession. Yeah. So the, imagine the branding you're going to build. People remember how you did at bad times much more than they remember how you did in good times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're going to find out Eventually. Uh. <laughs> yes. And in my mind, I, I'm not suggesting that a recession is beginning. At this point, actually, yeah. I do not believe that the chances of a recession are high. I believe they're low. 
I think that the Fed is being overly accommodative, something that's going to hurt us five to 10 years from now. They're I agree. Being, being this accommodative at 3.8% unemployment rate is going to create asset bubbles, which going, are going to be very, very difficult to un, you know, without bursting, it's going to be very difficult to deflate them. Yeah. But for the moment, I'm very bullish that we are not going to have a recession. We're going to see slowing growth, right? So we might see a, a lower level of GDP growth than we're used to, a lower level of job growth, and certainly a lower level of rent growth. So we, we're seeing rent growth moderating all across the U.S. It's not just, you know, it's not just the West. It's not just the East. It's basically all across the board. I see Dallas moderating. I see, you know, basically all the, the super hot markets in Florida and, and Texas are also moderating. And moderation is not a bad thing. We've had five or six years of ridiculously insane over-the-top rent growth. It's time for us to have a year or two that more looks like 2% than yep. 5 Because yep. if you keep having that 5%, something really, really bad happens. And I'll give you an example of this. If your rent growth is 4 or 5% continuously for four or five years, those same guys that work at Starbucks, those same people that drive the bus, are now basically standing outside City Hall and screaming. And now what happens is cities make radical changes that can hurt you and hurt me. For example, Minneapolis just outlawed single-family zoning, right? They were so, there were people standing outside City Hall every day, 400, 500, 600 people screaming at all the politicians coming out of City Hall in Minneapolis. And because they did it for six months or a year, Eventually, the city outlawed all kinds of single-family zoning. How does that hurt us? In the short run, it means nothing. In the long run, though, five or six years from now, you will notice that Minneapolis cap rates will keep going up. Why? Because a huge number of single units can now be converted to twos, threes, and fours. And because that conversion is happening, some of the multifamily supply is no longer needed in Minneapolis. By the way, I live in Minneapolis. Oh, there we go. Um, so, it's not a hundred percent passed yet. It right. got passed, but now it's being fought and all this kind of stuff. But you're ratified, right? I, I just right. don't and think that's a good right. place to be in, right? You, you don't want to get there. You don't want to get there. I agree. And, and and Minneapolis is trying to do a lot of things. They keep getting sued, um, everything that they try to pass, but this stuff is going to trickle through and there's, you're right. I mean, these rents are increasing dramatically. Minneapolis has seen nothing compared to some of these other cities right, uh, right. that have seen massive growth. So it'll be interesting to see what happens if that growth does continue. Um, yep. What about yep. vacancies? I've seen vacancies in some areas. I was just reading an article on, on Austin, Texas, the vacancy rates like 7.8% right now. Um, well, I think that the short answer is if you if you slice and dice it by B's and C's, you'll see that Austin has overbuilt on the A side. So the sure. vacancies there for A's are over 10%. And what's happening is that what they should have really done is decrease the rents on the A's a little bit and they chose not to. So their vacancies got, have gone up. And, and really all of the Austin market, the B's and the C's should have seen a little bit of negative rent growth, same as what happened in Houston with negative rent growth, mm -hmm. but they haven't decreased prices. So either you can drop prices or you're going to see vacancy increase. But on the class C side, I think Austin's right around six or 7%. I don't think that to be in a ridiculous That's number. Terrible. I know in this yeah. cycle, we think 7% is a horrible number, but you look at the last hundred years, people are like 7%, no big deal. 
Yeah, we're, we're used to in this market. I mean, Minneapolis, talk about Minneapolis again. I mean, Minneapolis is at like 3.6% or something it's ridiculous. Yeah. I think St. Paul's even worse, right? So, so you've yeah. got all kinds of amazing first time things happening. And what I'm seeing, Todd, is because podcasts didn't exist yeah. in the last, you know, massive cycle the way they do today when we say something it gets repeated by a hundred thousand people within a month or two right. and it becomes an urban myth so much faster than before that it actually starts to influence cap rates right and so i i feel like part of my job is to basically speak out when i see these kinds of strange things happening so what? yeah and What's and you know, there's a couple others like that that I want to talk about, but yeah. obviously that that was the first one that 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 shocked me. And then the second one is this: that I have a friend who works for a crowdfunding portal, and it's a very big crowdfunding portal. Everyone knows what it's called. I'm not going to name him because he asked me specifically not to. He said something that shocked me hard. He said you know, we are looking at hundreds and hundreds of projects every month. We have a massive underwriting department of a dozen people sitting in a room evaluating incoming projects. He says, it is our belief that the projects being purchased in 2019, Todd, were less than 15% of these are going to be on Proforma. He says the number could be as low as 10%. Now, some markets are doing better. Ironically, Midwest markets are doing better in his opinion because there's more room there and the cap rates are not so crazy out of whack as some of the other places. But one of the things that I am worried about is that we are going to, we are creating what I call a multifamily syndication bubble. People ask me, is multifamily in a bubble? I say, no, it's, it's, you know, it's priced for perfection, but that's not the same thing as having a bubble. A bubble simply means that prices are completely out of whack with reality. I don't, I don't find that evidence to be there on the multifamily side because rents are continuing to increase you know, fairly quickly. I think a bubble could develop. But what I do see, Todd, is I see a multifamily syndication bubble. People like you and me and 10,000 others have gotten in somewhere along this cycle. And there's so many of us that we're actually beginning to influence the type of properties that are appropriate for syndication. Multifamily is a very large market. You know, there's buildings that are $600 million that nobody is syndicating. So as a size of the market, the syndication market's fairly small, but inside that, that asset class that's eligible for value add, I think we're beginning to create a bubble. And I'm concerned about that because the percentage of properties that are meeting Proforma is dropping very fast. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of challenging to, to for, for me uh, to find anything that works to, that makes sense. And a lot of these deals that you see are on their second or third or maybe even fourth value add. Yeah, that, that should be a red flag, right? So Big red flag. how is it that we're so smart that the first guy who did the value add didn't add the value that we want to add, the second guy didn't, and then the third guy didn't, and now we're like these magic people that are going to find additional value add the first three guys left alone. Well, they left them alone because they knew that it wouldn't work. They tried a unit or two. They tried a section or two. They tried messing with rents, and it didn't work for them, so they wrote it up as a value add, and, and you know, put it to you, gave it to you as an impossible job to do. 
And I see more and more of those happening. So one of the things that I do is whenever I see a property that's been traded twice, I just walk away. I don't even underwrite it. Because in my mind, I simply don't believe that the chances are that both of those people were idiots yeah. or lazy. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of, I mean, it's a, it's a great, it's a strategy that a lot of people do is they do their value add, they get stabilized and then they go on to another 10, 15% of the units or maybe even less. And they do that second phase and sure it works on 10% of the units, but can you get it to work on the rest of the units? A little bit of the market will bite on it, but is there enough of a market to bite on the rest? That's, That's a very key question. statement, Todd. I mean, simply because, because on a 200 unit property, you upgraded, you know, 10% of the units, 20 of them, and you got your rent bumps. That does not mean that you'll get the rent bumps on the remaining 90%. I think this is another one of those urban myths that because you got 20 of them at a certain price, you can get the others. Right. There are lots of reasons why you got on 20. There was, um, there was a family that, that was living in one of your older units. There were two bedrooms and the husband got a raise and the wife uh, is pregnant. She's concerned. She wants a nicer looking unit or they're just fighting. And, and the husband as a peace offering says, hey, you know, the, the unit down the corridor looks much nicer than ours and it's emptying out. Let's see if we can pay 150 bucks more and move there. That doesn't mean that every other one of those 200 units is having that conversation. So I, fee, I continuously see this concept of, well, just because 20 work, 200 will work. And I, I believe that that's a nonsensical concept. Yeah. So, um, I mean, if, if we got the syndication bubble, we got... Uh, let, let's talk about the positives. You know, how, how do we, as an investor, you know, people that are listening to us, myself included, uh, how do you go about continuing to purchase multifamily uh, assets and make sure we're not uh, participating necessarily in the bubble activity uh, and, and protect our investors? Of course, that's like you said earlier, I and mean, that's the number one thing is you're trying to make sure your investors are, their money is protected, yeah, first and foremost. So there's many different answers to the question. So maybe I'll give you a minute each on each of them. Number yeah. one is start considering new construction. New mm. construction is considered a much riskier asset class than value add with, and that, that is completely true, by the way. It's a much riskier asset class. But here's a question that I want to ask you, Todd. You're buying a $20 million building. And let's say you believe, Todd believes, that the market is 10% overvalued, okay? When that case, you're overpaying by 2 million, 10%, right. right? It's very hard to come back from a $2 million hole that you've dug for yourself on day one. Very yep. tough, right? Yep. Now you go and do new construction, and it's a $20 million building, so the land that you're buying for it will be $3 million, and yep. it's 10% overvalued which means that you've dug yourself a $300,000 hole on day one. You haven't dug yourself a $2 million hole. So now you have a million seven as a positive, and that million seven will get taken on because of the higher risk of new construction, construction delays, construction overruns, you know, higher prices due to the trade war, things like that. Keep in mind that at this point, anybody who's doing new construction is already pricing in the trade war. People who were doing it nine months ago were not pricing it in, but the prices that I'm buying today are the already inflated prices, right? Which may actually go down if the trade war moderates and actually give me a bonus. 
So now I have this million seven cushion on a $20 million building to burn up. So what I'm finding is on a risk reward basis, new construction might actually be getting very close to value add because of the fact that the value add market is very inflated. So that's, that's my number one answer. Look mm -hmm. at new construction because on a risk adjusted basis, it's, it's, it's getting there. Okay. Number two, start looking at, so if you don't want to go into new construction because it's a lot of headache and it is right. Or you simply don't have the competency to do new, new construction. Look at properties that have the potential to build more units, right? So, there are properties where you can like, for example, my Jacksonville property has the potential to build 32 more units, right? So now I have another way to exercise uh, my creativity and create more NOI there. Am I going to build fancy units? No, because you know, it's a property that we're buying at $80,000 a unit. So I'm going to build the cheapest damn units that I can think of and basically match color. Now they will be nicer in the sense that they'll have you know, nicer looking faucets and they'll have nine foot ceilings, but I'm not making bigger units. I'm right. not making anything grander. In fact, I'm gonna make smaller units. I'm gonna make units that are actually six inches smaller on each side, but because they're brand new and the ceiling is higher, they look bigger, Yeah. right? Yeah. So, and so now what you're doing is, exactly, and, and doing a little bit of construction, 20 more units or 30 more units, it's actually, massively different than doing a 200 unit project from scratch. Yeah. So you, you basically built that up. Then start looking from the very beginning, add into your business plan, a secondary source of income. So uh, our property in uh, that we're doing, so let me give you both new construction and value add examples. The one in Jacksonville is a value add and we are using a company called Hosty to do Airbnb units. So we're doing furnished units and we're, you know, we've got the, up, up, the, what we believe are the right units that are facing the right road and they're they're nicer, better looking units with better views and we basically furnish those and we're running those kinds of experiments. Um, the property that I'm building from scratch happens to be in St. George, Utah, my favorite uh, metro in the US to invest in. And there I have designated an entire 24 unit building for Airbnb because that area is zoned for Airbnb, for nightly rentals. So what I'm doing is I'm building an apartment complex with a clubhouse and I've found the building that's freestanding next to the street, has its own parking lot. And I'm saying this building is nightly rentals. And I'm basically, you know, working from the very beginning on installing locks with buttons, USB ports, you know, uh, um, solar on the top because I'm the one paying for electric, not, not the tenants. Sure. I'm doing all of those things from the very beginning. So I'm pivoting in a way that I have this secondary source of income. Another one is, is nurse staffing. So if you're near a, a major hospital, you, 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 can, you can do 13 week rentals with nurse staffing and that can pop your NOI. And a fourth way is, is what we, we like to do across all of our properties and that is NOI optimizer. NOI optimizer is a process of looking at your net operating income not as an asset manager. You, for a moment, assume you're a property manager and say, let me study what in this property can be improved if I was to provide the manpower instead of my property manager. Because my property manager clearly is too busy to do this. Um, some properties, that could mean that you hire people independently as contractors to make phone calls to sell washer dryer combos or covered parking. Or in other properties, you have you notice that their renewal rate is what's really killing you. 
because they're, you know, their, their renewal rate should be 60% and it's 30% because they're not making phone calls for renewals 90 days in and offering incentives. Well, you basically hire a cold call guy or almost a cold call guy that calls on behalf of the property and you try and get your renewal rates from 40 to 50. The difference between a 40 and a 50% renewal rate is a massive saving of time, effort, turnovers, cost, you know, vacancy. It's a huge difference. And so I encourage people to say, I look at my property as an experiment and I say, within this property and looking at all of my other properties, comparing this property, what the heck does this property do worst that Todd Dexheimer can work on as opposed to Todd's property manager? And I think that last strategy is the most powerful of the four. Yeah, um, it, oftentimes we wanna just count on the property management, right? And we think they're, they're the ones that, but they're only as good as well, we are too. If we're, if we're not leading them, if we're not, we're, we're the leadership team. And if we're not able to actually help them implement some of the strategies and make sure they're doing it, they're not gonna, they're not going to be good on their own well, for the most part. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a um, fifth strategy that people don't like to hear about, but I'd like to mention it. One of the, if you think that it's a great property, change your split with investors and give yourself a, a bigger bonus on doing a great job. So if your investors are used to 70, 30, come in with 80, 20, and say, I'm gonna do a, a 40, 60 beyond a certain level. And then go to work on that property, work very hard on it and get yourself that 60%, you know, if you, as a bonus. So obviously you, you need to be very confident about a property to do that because you're cutting your, your, your piece, but it's definitely a strategy that I've seen. So in, in St. George, I'm doing it, I'm 80, 20, and then I reach a certain threshold and then I switch to a higher level. Yeah, and I think that's a great strategy because I think right now, um, I hate to say it, but I, I, I believe it's true, is there's there's people out there right now that are buying buildings just for just to get their fee, just to get some of their fees. And, and they're not worried about performance as much as they are about capturing that fee. And that's what's going to pay the bills at the end of the day. And that's a scary position in or, for me uh, to watch that other people are, I think dabbling in uh, at this time. I think that the that, that's why I, I consider multifamily syndication to be a bubble mm -hmm. because let me say this very bluntly, multifamily syndication is an awful fee model. You, you could probably, if you look at 20 random businesses to get into, the other 19 are definitely going to be better models from a fee perspective than multifamily syndication. And this is not clear to people because you can get away with your first and second syndication, putting money in the pocket. By the time you're in the third or the fourth, if it's going to your pocket, something is wrong because you have to actually build infrastructure and costs and people and asset managers and all these fees that basically that you now have to pay as an active business. So yeah. people that think that their fees go into their pocket are don't understand what they're doing and which is why I think when the next recession happens, a bunch of these properties are going to lose their asset managers. Yep. Yep. I agree. Agree. They're not doing it right. They're taking it for their own pocket, like you said, and they're not uh, building a business. A lot of people are, are transactional in real estate and they're only worried about the next deal that comes up. They're not worried about actually building a positive business that's going to sustain. 
Yep, and that's one of my, you know, my other beefs. Um, when I look at 50 podcasts, if you compare the ratio of people talking about buying buildings to the ratio of people talking about managing them, it mm. is completely out of whack, right? Buying a building is a, let's say a six month process. On average, three months to find, three months to buy, yep. right? Managing a building is a five to seven year process. Yep. And the fact that no one talks about asset management or the challenges that they're coming across there tells me that these are not professionals. They don't understand that in 2019, buying a building with these inflated values is the exact equivalent of taking an anchor, wrapping it around your neck and throwing it into deep water. And now the next five and a half years is you trying to make sure that it doesn't drown you, right? That's what you're actually doing. And from the very beginning, you need to have strategies to make sure that that anchor doesn't pull you down. Yeah. Or you don't end up in a situation where you simply have no control, the chain gets unwrapped, the anchor goes to the bottom of the ocean because that anchor is your investors and your property, right? So you can't lose control, you can't let go of the chain and you can't get dragged under either. And I think that most people don't see it that way. And the truth is that is that way, it is that way. And if you start looking at it that way, you're going to be much more realistic about what you should be buying and what you should be managing. Hey, let's take a minute to thank our sponsor, Pine Financial Group. Look, you work hard for your money. Is your money working hard for you? Because of inflation, money sitting idle erodes your wealth. Many investors understand that real estate is a great investment, but may not want the effort or the risk that comes with owning their own property. They want to sit back and have payments, hit their bank account each and every month. Stop eroding your wealth and start building it by asking your money to work for you. You should be earning profits while you sleep in investment backed by real estate. Pine Financial Group, the leader in hard money lending in Colorado and Minnesota, was recently approved to offer their investment publicly. This investment offers only for investors in Colorado and Minnesota and is only made through the investment prospectus. Get your copy today. Simply visit www.pineinvestments.com and click to get started. There's a reason why some of the wealthiest people in history invest in loans backed by real estate. Learn more about the risks and returns at www.pineinvestments.com. It's www.pineinvestments.com. What, what are some things as an asset manager uh, that you do maybe either differently or that you feel is, is really helping serve your investors? What are maybe a couple, I'm sure there's a lot of them, but just a couple key things that you think is really important that we can pass on. Well, the first thing is that we do not trust our property managers to do everything. There are properties where we, so last year we raised 30,000 tenant leads independent of our property manager for our portfolio of properties. 30,000 actual tenant leads, phones, emails, and for a couple of our properties, we are processing those tenant leads ourselves. We, we have an army of you know, people that are processing those tenant leads because we find that the area which has the highest return on time and investment is top line. If you can give more qualified tenants to your property manager to process, 
you can fix a lot of problems. You can fix a bunch of problems because the quality increases, the time in property increases, the vibe of the community increases, the reviews increase. All of that because you were, you gave your property manager choice. If your property manager has a unit to rent and only one app, there's a good chance that he's gonna take somebody that he does not want to take, somebody yeah. that's very borderline. If he has two apps, trust me, even within the confines of fair housing, your property manager knows what to do. So we believe in being super aggressive on lead management. And I mean, I, I don't know of any other syndicator in America that could be on a, a podcast with Todd and say, I generated 30,000 leads for my properties last year. What did you do to generate leads? About 29 different engines, posting, reposting, full-time employees that are doing this. I've committed a massive amount of money to it because I believe that this is a cost that we should incur. And that, that's most of it is coming out of my asset, my, my, um, my uh, acquisition fees. Yeah. Because what good is an acquisition fee if the property doesn't perform? Yeah. I can't stay in business. I can't make money on the back end. So I might as well give up a portion of that fee to optimize the property in a way that truly benefits me and truly benefits my investors. So you're bringing that in-house. You're not using a, a third-party uh, company. No third-party company. Well, I, I haven't had a good experience with them. Obviously, you're using a third-party company with your management uh, team, but you're doing something on top of that. Yeah. What else do you so, do? So no, think, no. think of this as a property management company bolted on top of my third-party property management company. Yeah, yeah. No, that, so that's do. awesome. Yeah, we, so we, we definitely do, do some of that uh, lead generation ourselves, but uh, it sounds like I need to really step up the game because I'm not bringing in that many, <laughs> that <laughs> many leads. It, it's a big, you know, it's, 10, it's, a, it's a 10 property portfolio in nine different states. So they're, they're fairly large properties, but we are yeah. spending a lot of focus on that. Yeah, uh, We're doing reputation management. So what we find is one of the best ways to help a property is to get its reviews from one and a half stars to three and a half stars. Mm -hmm. And why three and a half? Why not four, four and a half, five? We find that it's, it's hard to get it from one and a half to three and a half. And at three and a half, it's, the property's reviews are not hurting it in any way. So here's what happens, right? You call, you, you have a tenant, he fill, you know, sees you on apartments.com and he fills out a form and you call him and you schedule an appointment. On the day of the appointment, that guy now picks up his phone and types in, you know, the name of your apartment complex and it comes up on Google. And at, just as he's about to tap the directions button, he sees the stars, which are in yellow, right below the address. And if the stars say one or one and a half or two, two and a half, guess what he does? He taps the stars and starts reading your reviews. This is like an hour before he was to leave for the appointment. And then two thirds of those people that are reading your reviews, never show up. They just don't go. They don't want to live there anymore. They're like, oh my God, this place is, is, is a piece of shit. I'm, I don't want to go there. Yeah. And so now what you have is you schedule, you spend your time, your, your leasing manager spends so much time scheduling all these appointments, but your show rate sucks. It's awful. And so when you, act, when you focus on getting the reviews up from one and a half star to three and a half stars, you're helping your leasing manager every single day. And to us, that's a very high return on our time invested. And we also do that in-house. Are there any, uh, maybe a couple, couple little things that they do to help build that? Because obviously you got to have tenants that are giving the good reviews. Call your tenants right after you do a maintenance thing 
and yeah. ask them how it went. And if they say, and they say, oh yeah, things went well. They say, could you please rank this maintenance visit on a scale of one to 10? And if they say 10, then say, overall, are you satisfied living in this apartment complex? And they say, yes, I am. Say, okay, well, in, in about 30 seconds, you'll see a text message on your phone with a link. I would be very grateful if you could write a review for us. Um, it's, yeah. it's, you know, we, we, we want people, other people to know that we're working hard to do a job, fixing your maintenance problems and also checking to see your satisfaction level. Every 20th or 30, 30th percent person that you talk to this way, will tap on that link and write you a good review. Yeah. So Excellent. it's hard. It takes a long time. It's totally worth it. Yep. Yep. Excellent. Um, anything else on the asset management side? Little things. I mean, we, 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 I, I'm known as the mad scientist because I run experiments. So yeah. you talk, do you have cameras at any of your properties? Uh, I, I don't have cameras at, at any of my properties. Um, if you, if you had cameras, would you point them to the parking lot? I'm assuming. Um, I mean, that would be one good place to point them, but I think okay. also on entrance doors and various yeah. locations. I have a suggestion. Yeah. Make sure that all doors are covered and all staircases are covered. Yeah. And don't use them to prevent crime. They will prevent crime anyway, as long as you've got them there, people can see them, right? The, the, the goal of cameras is to keep the honest people honest, right? A professional thief knows exactly what to do anyway. Right. So, so they will do that. But have you considered using them to track your, your tenants to see which ones have pets that are not in Appfolio? <laughs> uh, that's excellent. Yeah, that's a good point. I have. It's extraordinarily profitable. Huh. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, well, cool, Neil. Uh, I mean, lots of really good information so far. What else would you like to tell our listeners about data? I mean, you, you love data. Uh, I, I know that by listening to you, by hearing you on other podcasts and all that. Anything else to, uh, about data that you want to talk to our listeners about that well, it, it, within the confines of the time that we have left, if I wanted right. to give you one nugget, it would be, you know, I want to give you a message and then a, a tangible nugget. My right. message is this. Data is the oil of the 21st century, right? So once you had an oil well in your backyard, you didn't go and find other ways to invest. You just made sure that you dug another well next to it. You, with data, it's literally like oil. It keeps giving for decades at a time. So really learn to be data focused and be okay with giving up some of your control to your data. Think of data as a partner, right? So you have a partner, its first name is data, its last name is data, and it stands next to you. And whenever you ask him for a, you know, his opinion, he says, oh, this, this is a horrible area, don't invest in it. At that point, don't be afraid of giving up control to data data. He's your partner and you have to help him, allow him to make a good decision. So that's my focus. In terms of a nugget, a specific nugget on how to do this, I want to direct you to a website called neighborhoodscout.com. It costs 39 bucks a month. Yep. This kind of data, Todd, in the 1980s used to cost 50,000 a year because there were no 
uh, cloud software companies. So you were paying 50 grand a year. Now you're paying 39 bucks a month. You can cancel anytime that you wish. There's no restriction. Yeah. Whenever you're looking at an area, go into Neighborhood Scout and type in you know, the address and hit enter and pull the report. That report, once you pull it maybe 20 times, is going to make you a demographic expert. And while this report has so many sections that I could do an entire podcast for you telling you what to do with each area and how to interpret every single page of it, the one minute nugget that I wanna give you is, the very end of this report has two very colorful sections and they're right next to each other. And they are rankings of the neighborhood from one to five. The ranking on the left is the neighborhood's uh, ranking in terms of future appreciation, future appreciation. And the ranking on the right is how much of a blue chip is it? So on the left, if you had a ranking of one, then future appreciation is very, very low and, and you're not gonna get anything out of it at all. Okay, if it's five, then future appreciation is spectacular and you're gonna do really, really well on either single family purchases or on multifamily rents. On the right side is blue chip. If it's one, well, that's your definition of a D. If it's two, it's probably a C or a C minus. If it's a three, it's a C plus. If it's a four, it's a B. If it's a five, it's either a B plus or an A, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's blue chip ranking. I know what I'm about to say is very difficult and I personally vouch for it, but try and find three threes or three fours or three fives. My Opportunity Zone project in Provo is a four five. 288 reports have been pulled in my account. This is the first time I've seen a four five. What does that mean? It's four in terms of future appreciation out of five. That's a very high rating, but it's also five on the blue chip, right? Hmm. So it's a blue chip that is just beginning its run. You see what I mean? By doing this- Opportunity zone? That is an opportunity zone. So it wow. actually happens to be in an opportunity zone. So it's tax-free. Yeah. It's four on the, on, the, uh, on the future opportunity and five on the blue chip. It's practically impossible to find those kinds of things. But of course, I've been using data for five years. But my point is, Let's say you haven't used data at all. And let's say you have not done nothing with data. What I just told you, if you do it with 10 properties, it's gonna open your eyes on the quality of the area immediately. I'm not saying neighborhood scout can't be wrong. I'm not saying that there may not be interesting things happening in that neighborhood that neighborhood scout doesn't know. All I'm saying is, I simply say this, I only have time to buy three to four properties a year. So if neighborhood scout says no, I'm gonna say no. I understand that some of those are missed opportunities. I am perfectly willing to walk away. I only wanna to go to the ones where it says yes, right? And that is my philosophy. If, if you do that and you're willing to take the extra effort to find the, the yeses, you're going to be very successful. Hmm. I love it. I love it. And so many of us go off of our intuition instead of, our, instead of the data that tells us exactly what we should be doing. And I like that you take the data approach because it's just the data doesn't lie. And it doesn't lie. Right. We oftentimes right. want to lie to ourselves though and, and make believe that the data is lying or or that we know better. We somehow. convince ourselves, right? So 
One of the things that I do that I suggest for syndicators that now have the money, you have your acquisition fee in, right? Do you know what the best way, use of that acquisition fees is? For your next project, don't underwrite yourself. Hmm. We use a third party service. If anybody wants a, a, rec a recommendation, I will be happy to connect you to them because I believe that we tend to convince ourselves all the time when we are underwriting. We yeah. do a brief underwrite to make sure that it's worth sending over we use a third party underwriting service, not because we don't have the time, but because they have no skin in the game. They don't mind saying no when it should be no, right? So um, that's something that I recommend for people who've kind of gotten beyond the first couple of properties. Obviously the first couple of properties, you do what you have to. But after that, I think it's a very good use of your, uh, of your acquisition money. Um, I'm pretty much paying $1,000 every single week at this point for that. Sorry. Are you having them underwrite prior to putting in an LOI or are you having them underwrite after you get, uh, you know, you pretty much have the property or, or getting really close? Best and final. Best and final. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's too expensive Yeah. Right. to do it other ways. So, so, <laughs> so they, they're used to doing it in within 24 hours, right? Cause I'm, I'm doing yeah. it every single week. Um, so I want to go back, finish with the two mantras, right? At the yeah. very beginning, I said, I live by two mantras, right? If you cannot measure, you cannot manage. And the second one, which you, you talked about basically a moment ago, which is data beats gut feel by a million miles every single day. I'm, I'm humbled by how often data proves me wrong. <laughs> and I have a very strong memory for every time I'm proven wrong. And eventually I've gotten to the point where I say my partner data is usually much more right than I am. And so it's better to listen to that partner. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got like, we got to wrap up here, but I got a couple real quick questions. We got a few, few minutes here. Sure. Um, what's your favorite book? So for me, there's an, a number of them. The one that I'm looking at that is my current favorite is Traction because mm -hmm. a lot of people read books on how to get started, but yeah. actually much more important is how to, take something that you've started and scale it. And I find that traction, which is a very prescriptive book, step-by-step, step, do this, don't do this, do this in such a way for so many days, is a phenomenal book to get from, you know, to get somebody who's not a rank beginner, somebody who's done it for a year or two, to get you to the next level, it's a phenomenal book. Yeah, uh, Gino Wickman, is that who wrote it? Gino Wickman. Gino Wickman, cool. Uh, last question before we wrap up, what are your three pillars of wealth creation? Well, I think you, you know, two of them already, right? <laughs> so, um, to me, I think the first one is measure everything. Yep. The second one is be analytical. And the third one is don't be afraid to do a deep dive. Too many of us say, this is the property manager's job. The, it is only their job. If you know how to do it better. If you don't know how to do it better, it's actually your job to get to the point where you can do it at least as well as they can. Don't be afraid to be to deep dive. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, Neil, how can our listeners get in touch with you? So I publish a massive amount of content, both mine and other people like me at multifamilyu.com. So multifamilyu.com publishes you know, we do about 50 webinars a year. We have one tonight. Uh, Jillian Sidoti is presenting a webinar about how to raise money. 
uh, to my audience tonight. Um, and so many, many different webinars, there's data analysts that come in, there's due diligence experts, there's people that are like loan wizards that come in. So go to multifamilyu.com. The one area of the site that I highly recommend is multifamilyu.com slash toolkit. So, you know, I do hundreds of hours of research every year and that research is, is up to date and timely. It's about every part of the business that you should understand. And I leave it in there. The toolkit is always meant to be free. Um, and the way that the toolkit works is people go in, they read it, they enjoy it, they, they, they connect with me on Facebook, and then they send me more pieces of information. So it's an ecosystem of people sharing data with no one ever paying anybody anything. And so it becomes, it becomes stronger as more people join because yeah. my intent is that no one should ever pay. And every time we do a major update in the toolkit, we send an email to everybody that's basically looking at it. Cool. Well, that's excellent. That's a great resource for people. I appreciate that. Um, well, that's, that's it. I appreciate you joining us. Ton of great information. I could probably keep on talking to you for another hour or two, but. Um, well, we should do another one where talk. we talk about asset management. Cause I, I think that one of my passions is that there's not enough podcasts telling newbies about what yeah. asset management truly entails. And there's too many about buying properties and, and raising money. I agree. I, I agree. You should do that. Right. I mean, our job is not just to educate them on, the pre-purchase piece, but also the post-purchase piece. We should do a deep dive on that and talk about nothing but asset management. And I think probably one of the biggest reasons why is because it's not as uh, it's not as interesting. It's not as exciting. It's not as, it's sexy, not as sexy, right? Well, they, here's mantra number three. I didn't get to tell you about this. In the multifamily business, what is least sexy is most sexy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You really have to think about that one, right? Because you have to think about what the heck does he mean the people that are doing the least sexy things are actually doing the most sexy things for themselves and for their investors. Yeah. Their success rates are 10x or 100x what everyone else is doing because they're able to drag themselves away from the showy stuff to the stuff that actually matters. Remember, as a syndicator, you're poor if your property makes no money and yeah. you're super rich if it actually makes money. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Awesome. Well, Neil, I'm going to let you go. You have a fantastic rest of the day. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, special thanks to Neil Bawa, and I appreciate him joining us on the show today. And a ton of value, ton, ton of uh, information, and a lot of stuff you don't hear from other, other guests. So really analytical uh, I, I like that approach definitely a lot. I mean, that's very similar to how I approach things. And uh, a couple of things I, I took from this episode. First of all, uh, be analytical. Make sure you're really digging deep, dive deep into the numbers and pay attention to what's going on uh, around you, whether you're investing in you know multifamily or really anything or any type of business. You need to understand um, the macro and the microeconomics and what's happening uh, within. So, and then another thing um, he always talks about is just measuring, measuring um, what is happening, making adjustments, uh, making sure you understand where your business is at. Uh, the last thing, you know, he, he talks about is just looking for other opportunities, looking for different secondary, secondary um, 
you know, opportunities to make money and other opportunities to cut expenses. So a, a lot of really, really good information in this episode. Again, take one or two things out of this episode and apply it to your business this week and, and the following and make those changes in your business. And it'll push you to be able to have success as you continue down your path. So uh, again, thanks to Neil Bawa for joining us. I appreciate the information he was able to give. Uh, tons of great information. Have a fantastic rest of the day. Make every day a Saturday. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. A couple things before we go. Again, go on to our Facebook page, Pillars of Wealth. We'd love to have you on there. Go on to iTunes, give us a rating and review, and subscribe to the show. Also, um, you know, don't forget, reach out to me if you want any help with uh, potentially growing your business, and reach out to John Styles to help you buy or sell real estate. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Have a fantastic the rest of the day. And as I say, make every day a Saturday.